Radio Influence. The future is now. You've seen Chef Ryan Duffy on Spike TV's Bar Rescue, NBC's Today Show, and opening bars and restaurants all over the world. Now he's sharing his stories, his friends, and some tips of the trade he's learned along the way. Prepare yourself to get Duffified. This is Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy on Radio Influence. Good morning, Friday friends and everybody else who's out there. Welcome to Duffified Live, episode number 38. Yep. I know I kind of surprise myself every single week that uh, that it's happening, but I really appreciate everything that you guys have been doing lately uh, with everything, because I'll tell you what, it, it's starting to really show. We're starting to get a whole bunch more followers, and I really appreciate everything that you guys are doing. So feel free to go over to iTunes, tell your friends, share all this stuff, get them over there. You want to write a nice little review? Feel free. Go right ahead. You can go to iTunes and do it all right there. Um, you want to talk shit about me? Go ahead. I dare you to talk shit about me. I would love to play in a little Twitter war with you. I'm just joking. Don't talk shit. Feel free to send me a private message if you want to talk shit. But uh, so uh, kind of a crazy uh, week that's been going on. I mean, look, I don't do the politics stuff. I try to stay as far away from it as possible. Um, but I, I read a really nice little uh, thing the other day. Look, I, I'm not going to get into the whole whether I voted for or not or or what goes on in the politics because I have no effect in that. So for me to sit here and talk about it is pretty much useless um, because I'm not a politician. I know how I feel, but it's kind of funny to uh, – there was a great thing written about Trump, and I know that we're going to get a whole bunch of shit about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, there was a whole bunch of shit that was written about Trump talking about how, uh, how, how funny it is about his tweets because of the fact that they're saying it's almost like it's a diversionary tactic, like because the amount of shit that he's getting done in office while everybody's bitching and moaning about his tweets, I do as well. I, I tweet him – pretty much weekly, like, hey, do me a favor. You already won. Shut the fuck up and go back to office. Stop tweeting. But what they're saying is that it's almost like it's a diversionary tactic where he's creating and reap and kind of wreaking havoc. By the way, if you hear all that noise in the background, look, there's only so much I can do. I have like five Amish guys building a house eight feet outside of my back door. We had a, I had a neighbor who was a psychotic bitch who lived next to me and on either side of her were properties, and she had this beautiful open land on either side with forest behind it, the whole nine yards. I've got a nice little property right here with a big, with like a little forest behind us, a little set of woods. We go in and steal wood and stuff like that. But she moved. She put her house up for sale, and all the neighbors hated her. She was just crazy. And she put her house up for sale, and when she sold it, she not only sold her house, she sold the lots on either side of her house too. And so now our cute little neighborhood of like open space now house has, has two additional houses that have been built. One is almost finished, and the one next to me, they just started about two or three weeks ago. And these Amish guys are just banging away. So forget about that. Don't pay attention to that. Let's go back. But they're saying that the amount of tweets that have been have been going out with Trump and the, the havoc that he's just wreaking across the world based on the tweets, but the amount of shit that he's getting done on the underbelly of it, like that, that a lot of these laws that are being passed and stuff like that and the executive orders that are going through, people don't even know it's happening because of the fact that he's putting all these tweets on it and everybody's focusing on that. So 
I think I like that. I do. I don't care who's in office. Uh, I, I think that uh, I think it's kind of funny the way that that happens. And and look, I'm done with all the politicians. There was a big thing that came out this morning that was talking about um, the staff alone in the White House was reduced. And I'm all for jobs, and I get that. But we're a country. We're still a business. And. And we need to uh, we need to find work, and we have to do all that stuff. But that the employment rate is uh, the the unemployment rate is down. But the funny thing is that within office, within the White House alone, they reduced staff by like by something like a hundred people. Obama's or, or Michelle Obama's personal staff was a staff of twenty four, where Melania's uh, staff is a staff of four. So it's kind of funny to see that politician versus versus like the regular people that are in there. Not that Trump's a regular dude, but whatever. I, I just think that that stuff's all pretty funny. So um, there's uh, there, there's a couple fun things that have kind of been going on. Other than that, you know, we're into the whole world of. Uh, um, we're into this whole world of, uh, food, man. That's what we do. Most of it with my business and what I've been doing. And I've been home for the last couple of weeks working on some new menus. I've been working with some new clients. I have a, uh, a really cool client that's getting ready to open up a property in Wildwood, New Jersey that I'm really excited about because they've already got three properties that are very successful. So it's a good way for me to kind of show my food on a property like this, as opposed to, you know, I did some other properties before that I had put my name on, uh, with promises from the companies that were doing them to be able to execute on an exceptionally high level. And unfortunately, they were just unable to do so. So I actually had to ha I had to remove my name from those projects. Um, I work really hard for my clients to get them to be successful. And I work really hard for my clients to get them to uh, to execute at the highest level. And, and a part of that process that I do with them is I put my name on them on the menu. I put my name on the on the on the business so that they can one either market with that because I have a very high standard of what I do, which is why I got out of my last project with the restaurant in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, and, you know, so to put my name on something is big because it, it comes back to me. I hear about it. You know, we market that property with my name attached to it as the person who did the food, as the person who, who trained the kitchen. So if a kitchen doesn't execute, then, then no matter, it doesn't, nobody gives a shit what the reality of it is, whether it be a company that's unable to execute or a company that has decreased their labor or a company that just doesn't understand the concepts of restaurants. Uh, it all comes back to me because then they talk shit about me because of the fact that Look, it's really simple. My name was attached to that food, so I've got to be real careful with that. So I'm really excited about these new guys that are uh, that are opening up because they're very, very high quality operators. They have a huge amount of success on the properties that they've done in the past. So I'm really excited about it, and I'll talk a little bit more about what project it is as we move in uh, to the next couple of months once we start really getting uh, some groundwork done with it. And they're building from scratch. So it's a neat project to put together. It's a huge microbrewery um, in an old Harley dealership. So I'm, I'm kind of stoked about that. Um, but uh, so let's talk about what's been going on kind of in the world. I, I love this new site, Food Beast. I have no idea where they've been before, but I'm really kind of stoked about it with what they have. Um, there's a great article that came out uh, the 27th of November, so last week, that talks about the seven ways that restaurants control your mind. Um, it, it's a neat thing because you know we've always heard about ways that you know menu mechanics and the way that that serve that servers can upsell and talk you into buying a product, or the way that a menu is laid out. You know, uh, when you look at a menu. 
It's actually designed. If you have if you have a quality operation that has spent money or, or has done research on the way that menus are laid out and put together, the way that your eye lands on a menu is typically where they would put a higher ticket item or a suggested sell item. Um, I have clients right now in a little town in, in eastern Pennsylvania who have a menu that they took our initial design and they – kind of turned it into their own and they kept saying, well, all we're really doing is selling burgers. We're not selling appetizers. Well, the way that the menu's laid out, it automatically directs your eye to go to the burgers. So if it's a one-page menu and you're just looking at, let's say, like a placemat menu, you start at the top left-hand corner of the menu. Your eye then automatically scans diagonal from the top left corner. After you go through the appetizers, it then goes scans through the right-hand side of the menu, kind of diagonal across to the bottom right-hand corner, and then it brings you back up to the right-hand side, and then it comes back through the center. So a lot of times when you see menus like that, that's why you see that center portion being boxed out or blocked out or highlighted or maybe an asterisk or something next to that because it stops your eye from moving anywhere else. Well. What they did was they didn't have that box in the middle. They didn't have any of that stuff to really to, – to suggestively sell something. But it moves then down into the bottom left-hand corner, which is where they had burgers. So we're rearranging the menu with that. But it's kind of funny that this article had come out because it talks about the seven ways that restaurants control your mind. This article was written by a gentleman named Peter Pham, and uh, it's kind of cool. It starts out with, the mind can play some pretty powerful tricks on you when it comes to food. Brands have spent decades crafting their presence into the brains of customers to the extent where even the slightest association to the restaurant brand can make someone crave something to eat. Through commercials, promotions, word of mouth, and product placement, we absorb the mind massery, mind messery of corporate brands on a daily basis. So a couple of things they talked about. One, McDonald's red and yellow. Did you guys know that red and yellow actually make your eyes look hungry? Okay, It makes you a little bit hungrier because of the coloring that goes in. We know that when we see a bright red background and the slight detail of yellow in the foreground, our minds instantly associate that with McDonald's. But take a look at other parts of that. Then we have KFC, which is that similar color concept, which is that brown and orange or brown and yellow. Burger King, same exact color scheme as McDonald's. In-N-Out Burger. Same exact color scheme of McDonald's. So it's kind of neat to think about that stuff. Think about Popeye's as well. Like they, they, they use the same color scheme. It has those same things in there. But what they're talking about now, then we go into Denny's. We start talking about Denny's as well. Um, there's kind of some neat things to think about when you go into that. So when you're driving down the street and you get a little craving for something, Maybe you can pay attention to what was going on uh, on the drive through. You know, were you at a red light and you looked over and there was a red and orange kind of color or a red and yellow color? Or maybe you just saw that, uh, you know, that M, uh, you know, in a yellow and you automatically think of a McDonald's. Look, I haven't had McDonald's in like seven or eight years. So I don't get that craving. I crave other things, but. It's just kind of funny to think about that. You know, go back to the days of uh, the great movie uh, Coming to America um, with Eddie Murphy, and and there was where did he work? We all know the man worked at McDowell's, and they weren't the Golden Arches; they were the uh, the Arcs, I think, or something to that effect. But it's kind of funny the way that that works. So, you know, when you guys start craving something, it really isn't to do with what's going on in your brain or in your belly. Maybe it comes down to something that was happening as you were driving along. So. I think that's kind of neat. But uh, all right. So we've got a really fun guest who's coming in this week. Um, 
a super cool chick from Philly. Uh, I ha- we have been friends for a while, um, and I have you know we we've really been kind of doing some more stuff together. We did two festivals over the last couple of months. One was the Taste Festival in Philadelphia. We did another festival called the Taste Festival in uh, in Lancaster. And I kind of have a new respect for her because of the fact that I've watched her grow over the last couple of years. I've watched a lot of the really cool things that she's doing. And uh, for me, look, I I love young chefs. Um, I love the inspiration that they get. I love to see the drive and the passion that they have to move forward in the business. And, you know, it's uncharted territory at this point, uncharted territory at this point, because we're all kind of doing the same thing. You know, whether you've been on reality TV or you've been on network TV or, you know, something to that effect, or you had a cooking show where you just started to do this stuff, we're all still kind of doing the same thing. So I've been on TV for 15 years. You know, I started off doing local stuff in Philadelphia. I started off with Fox and NBC, and then I ended up getting some Food Network stuff. And then from Food Network, I was able to move into a little bit of uh, some scripted stuff for different networks through branding and whatnot with HGTV and Fine Living and PAX and DIY. And then I just kind of started to really play around more with NBC when I was doing work for Kraft and working with NBC as well. I did eight years of local TV religiously. You know, for the first four years, I pretty much did – or first two years, I did every week. I did a six – four to six-minute segment every single week for craft. So I would get on air and I would go in and I'd do a segment called In the Kitchen or whatever it was, 10 at 10 or I don't know. It was just a cool show on NBC in Philadelphia. And I would go in and I would just cook and it was a blast. I loved doing it. And then it got to be too much for doing every week. So we moved it to every other week. And I did that for about four years and then I finished off my last two doing it about every month. They were bringing in other chefs and all that, which was great because I was on the road a lot more. But it was really kind of cool to watch that progression and then I ended up with Spike TV by doing Bar Rescue, which you know we can talk about Rescue all day long and all the other stuff. But uh, it was a learning experience and I'm going to talk to some learning experience about that with our next guest. So um, our next guest is just a a, a wonderful person. She's a really, really nice girl and I really love watching her grow. So um, you guys may have seen her. You know, I 100% know you've seen her on Hell's Kitchen. So everybody do me a favor and welcome to Duffified Live, Miss Christine Hazel. All right, everybody, here we go. We get to talk to uh, Chef Christine Hazel. What's going on, lady? Hi. I'm doing well. It's a little cloudy here in Philly, but other than that, I'm I'm pretty good. Say you're crowded in Philly? No, it's cloudy out here. It's horrible. It's like rainy and miserable and wintry, but (laughs) other than that, I'm doing fantastic. Well, so how much, first off, do me a favor. Why don't you uh, give us a little introduction about yourself? I already did um, prior to getting you on the phone, but why don't you give us a little introduction about yourself, who you are, what you do, as well as give us all your social media stuff so that we can follow you. Sure. All right. So I'm Chef Christine Hazel. I'm based out of Philadelphia, but I basically travel the country doing the pop-up dining experience, which is different restaurants, venues, casinos, hire me to do like a five-course plated dinners and help them bring in, you know, different audiences that they've never had before. I also work for different companies writing recipes for home cooks and showing them how to use different types of products. And my social media handles are Chef Christine Hazel on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. And then Chef Christine, I mean, Christine Hazel one on Snapchat. Got it. You, so do you, do you do a lot of Snapchat? I've been getting a lot better at it. I feel like it's definitely probably the most 
easy way to see what I'm doing on a daily basis. Really? Um, I feel like people are using it a lot more than yeah. Instagram and Twitter right now. It's definitely the most current. Uh, so I try to put it out there. I get to show you like little tidbits, little behind the scenes videos or little snapshots of whatever I'm making. So I think it's shady. Is it something you use a lot? I think it's, think shady, it's shady as shit. I think it's shady as shit. 100%. I think it was made to be shady. I think whoever came up with it was definitely <laughs> that person that was sending out like creepy videos and things to people. But if it's used the right way, it does not have to be shady. I just, it's just gotten so complicated anymore. I mean, look, you know, I mean, you know, as much as I do, cause you are a social media hound as much as I am. Um, but it, it's just, it seems like it's so much. I mean, how, how, like I spend three hours a day probably just doing my social media following. Okay, not just on Snapchat, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. I do very little on Snapchat. I have like a core group of friends on Snapchat. I have two friends of mine that are from Philly. Uh, uh, that are, that are a riot, uh, Farley and Ashley. And, uh, it's a group called Dove, Duff loves to delete us because I get tired of their okay. bullshit back and forth. So I just delete it, but they do like all their antics and everything. I should have them on one day, but, and, and I then think it's uh, the most fun one to use. I feel like Instagram, you're definitely putting out tons of food pictures. You're putting out every like little activity I'm doing, but I feel like Snapchat, you can have a little bit of fun. You could be a little bit like different than the other ones. Right. But see, my problem is conversation, because if you and I are talking on Snapchat and then I have other friends that I'm talking to on Snapchat, or if I hop out of Snapchat and go into Instagram and then I come back, say, 20 minutes later, you replied to something that I cannot remember what I said. <laughs> and it's just gone. It and then it's just gone. <laughs> it does. Exactly. And then I reply back with, why are we snapping? Why don't you just text me like we're friends? Oh, my God. You're just you're just not good at it. Well, not, at that. Oh, it's my You're brain, not a it's my brain that's not a good Snapchatter. I'm sure I'm wonderful at it, but my brain sucks. Well, I feel like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, there's a paper trail. So it's perfect for you. You can just like refer back and see what's going on. But, but what, I hate when there's like you put a post up and then it's something like you posted a while ago. You look down, there's like a hundred something comments. You can't go through and see what they all were talking about. Exactly. <laughs> so it's it. not really user friendly. It's more just about, I don't know. I, I'm just not a fan of Snapchat. So. so shady Snapchat. I just exactly what I call it. You're like a shady snapper. That's what I call them. I can't Fair do enough. it. I just don't get into it. So, so what is your, I mean, so, so at this point right now, you finished what season of Hell's Kitchen? I was on Hell's Kitchen season 14. Okay. Uh, I was on for 11 episodes in 2015. All right. I want to know everything. everything? I want to know. From the mo literally from the moment that you auditioned. So let's okay. talk about that. So like, what did you have to do? What was the initial process? So let's say there's people out there that want to be on Hell's Kitchen. What did you do? What was your kind of, what did you have to do? Let's do that. Okay. Well, there's two circumstances. There's ones where you're going to go and sit in an open call where there's, you know, thousands of people um, in like a hotel in Philadelphia. And you just, it's kind of like a, like a factory, just like put them in, put them out. And like, See what happens. Mine was a little bit different um, because I was contacted because so someone thought I'd be a good fit for the show. Okay. So I didn't have to wait in line at least. So um, was it? So I went and I, were you contacted by a producer, or did were you put up for it by somebody like a friend that said, "Hey, you should do this," and they sent your information in? How did that? How so did they? I was contacted by a friend 
this Olga that I used to work with years ago. Um, and she was a consultant that was hired to find people that would okay. be a good fit for the show. Okay. So she contacted me and was like, you know what, this would be, this could be something that you would be interested in. And it was kind of early in my culinary career. I was about to graduate um, with my bachelor's in culinary management. I had one semester left. From where? So I just, um, the Art Institute of Philadelphia. Okay, got it. I'm going to continue to interrupt you through this entire interview, just so you know. Don't worry. I'm not right. <laughs> 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 so I went to like a, a hotel with these casting people, and I had to go in and just do kind of like a Q&A uh, on camera. So they just told me they're going to ask me lots of questions about myself, come camera ready, go in there and just be honest. So I, was, I guess I was pretty honest. I just was myself. I didn't like go above and beyond and try to be over the top. I just said what I do, what I want to do, my cooking style, things like that. And um, they sent the video out to the producers out in LA. And then you sit there and you wait. And I hate waiting. I'm one of the most impatient people in the world. <laughs> How long did you wait? And uh, was it wasn't too bad. Probably like a few weeks. Okay. But they tell you like they don't have to tell you if it's a no. I think that's the worst part, like the not knowing part. They, they don't <laughs> have to tell you if you've been selected or not? Yeah, I think that happens with a lot of things, like, like you know, with different job interviews and things like that. But, like, it's never, like, a firm no. But when you get the call, there's yes, no, you're extra excited. So. Got it. Okay. Once they did that, they, um, they tell you that they have to send you out to the producers and you're going to spend a few days. Like, I think it was five days. Please. Okay. But I went out there and they put me in a hotel room by myself and I wasn't allowed to talk to anyone. No, really, really. It's like you just have your TV and you and nothing else. And just so you couldn't go out anywhere. I can go in the hotel for a little bit, but we weren't allowed to talk to anyone. No shit. conversation because there was a lot of other people that were in the hotel that were being casted. Um, so you weren't allowed to make friends or and like accidentally find out that this is someone else that you might be. Really? So it was a little, it was like a, a weird experience at first. So they did a lot of tests. Nature I wasn't crazy or nature I was crazy. <laughs> like what like what kind of tests were they doing? Were you looking at ink blots? Um, yes. Um okay. also psychological ones where they would ask you like the most random questions like, you know, how do you feel about your father? Did you, really? did you like 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 <laughs> did you did you ever like get in arguments with your siblings or like just random stuff or like right. like how are you in school? Just, I don't know, and it made you think like, Am I not? Like what the hell is going on? Sure. Oh my god, it's gotta um, be the worst. It was weird. Yeah. Definitely strange. But then the medical test and made sure that I guess you were uh, physically able to do it. And then my personal favorite, the background check with the private investigator. Oh, really? Did you like have to sit with a private investigator or did they go back through and I, like? I think like basically we sat down after they went through all your stuff. Okay. So you know what I found out? I guess I'm not that badass because all I had was a parking ticket. <laughs> Some people yeah. had like, you know, sure. that stuff. Right. So it wasn't too bad. Okay. So private investigator goes through your stuff. What'd you say? I said, you don't know what to expect when they're sitting you down. You're like, oh my God, did you find something really bad? Like, you have no idea. (laughs) Lovely. Go ahead. Other than that, it was just like, you know, all the mental stuff. And and then they just grill you a lot. And then you sit there and you wait again to find out if uh, you're going to make it. So then they send you home and then you wait again for a couple weeks. Prior to going home, are they saying to you, okay, this is where we are, like, you know, you're one of 500 or you're one of 50? And are they are they also telling you, like, how long are you – well, I'll get into that. Go ahead. So you go home and you wait. Then you find out. So go ahead. Yeah, they basically tell you nothing. 
when you're leaving. Okay. Um, and then they just send you home and then you're not talk about anything again. And you just sit there and wait, wait, wait. And then I finally got a call and I was told that I was casted. And when I was leaving. Wow. So, so what, wow. Do they, I mean, what happens if you're <laughs> casted? This is just drives me crazy because you're literally at the mercy of mm-hmm. you have to production. be available. Yeah. You have to be available. So you're casted and they say, okay, you're going to LA and you're going to be there for this many weeks. How many weeks were you taping? They kind of give you a range. Not everyone's there the same amount of time. So the most for us, it was five weeks, five weeks. I was there for the five weeks. Yes. Okay. Okay. Some people, um, if they, if you're sent home in like the first, like 10 first, yeah, I think so. First, like nine or 10, you basically go back and um, they send you into like hiding for a few days, make sure you're, you know, not going to do any harm to yourself. And then they send you home. <laughs> it's crazy. They literally own you. It is. Yeah, it, it is. But yeah, so I was out there for five weeks. So you get, once you're out there, it's like you have no email, you have no phone, you have no contact with the outside world. I think that's oh. the biggest thing that people don't get about that show. Right. You're hidden. And that's and what, you're- when they see people do those crazy behaviors because you have, no activity. You don't have television. You don't have radio. You don't have any, like, you don't even have music. It's just like an odd thing. It's like being sequestered for court. Yes. Basically. Um, so are you allowed to talk to your family? Is there any communication with friends or any of that stuff? No, there is absolutely no communication um, with your family at all for the time period you're out there. Even if you get kicked off and you go back to your, to the area, you do not contact your family. You have no communication. Get I mean, if there's an emergency of some sort, they would contact your family or if it's vice versa, they would have a contact point, but you yourself could never communicate. I couldn't do it. There's no way in hell. There's no way you in hell. You couldn't I, do it? I, well, no, because I mean, first off, my, my family and my friends are so important to me. And especially, I mean, I have girls. I have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old daughter. So for yeah, me, there's no way. Yeah, there's just no way that would happen for me. So guess what? Gotcha. Hell's Kitchen, don't ever call me. Not that I could do the show anyway, because I wouldn't. Oh, know, I'm but. putting in a referral right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Send my head. They're going to be like, holy shit, it's that short fat dude. Um, oh, my God. So, okay, so <laughs> now you're five weeks in. I mean, what is, what is, what's going on? I mean, so day one, at one point, okay, so go ahead. So you're, uh, you're in a hotel. For a few days, they make sure you're good once they bring you back out there. Okay. So when you know you're going to film, they get you out there for a few days. Make sure you give you like a two day window, you know, just people are jet lag, come from all different parts of the country. Right. And then they don't tell you anything. And then they just tell you to be ready. And you just sit there and you wait basically all day. And then they put you on a bus with these people that you've never met before and you're not allowed to talk about. And then all of a sudden filming starts rolling. Like the cameras start going and you're on this bus and and you know that you're headed towards Health Kitchen. And everyone just starts talking and making friends. And I'm looking around because I'm like a people watcher. I always like to see what everyone's doing. And I'm like, all right, this person's weird. This person definitely seems crazy. Like, what are they wearing? And I'm <laughs> friends with these two people, like this guy and the girl. And they're like kind of like quiet like me. We're like just sitting there. We're talking. And we get off the bus and we see Gordon Ramsay standing on top of a building. And he's up there. And then there's like this big inflatable thing. Almost like you would see at a bounce house. Right. And he's up there like a megaphone and he's like, Hey guys, if you want to get in the health kitchen, you're going to have to climb up on top of the building and jump off the building. And I was like, 
okay, not that bad, right? Because sure. I literally just went skydiving like last the month before that. I was like, all right, this isn't too bad. I can <laughs> this, do that. This is so yes, we're volunteers, and I volunteer, and so does Brett for my season. And then these other two people, the people I made friends with ended up being stunt doubles. They weren't real contestants. What? <laughs> That's what I would do. I'm not even kidding. They're like, oh, they they dive off the building, and then they're like, oh yeah, by the way, they're not they're not real contestants. They're stunt they're stunt doubles because they were doing like like flips off the building and being ridiculous. I was like, so they've ruined <laughs> all of your trust right off the. All bat. my trust was gone the first day. It was ridiculous. <laughs> So then after they tell us we don't have to jump off this building, which was, yeah, whatever. So they go to us, they, we run into Hell's Kitchen and we are immediately surrounded by all these, like an audience that's in there, not like a, like they were all just sitting in the dining room waiting for us. And we are told to, we have to make our signature dish. So and that's really? just like we're in our everyday clothes, running and but you've, start cooking. you've at this point already established that, that, I mean, and, and pardon me, you know, I know I'm speaking to a female, but you've established at this point, I have a set of balls yes. because I've already yes. volunteered to go and jump off of a building. I don't have a problem with that, but I've got, I've got a set of cojones to say that I can do this. So you've already established yourself in the first 10 minutes of the show. Well, I figure like you come this far, how are you not going to do that? Like you're going to do exactly. whatever you ask. And of course it's going to get worse throughout the season. I'm sure right. that's in my head. I was like, well, this can if, if this is this bad, I can only imagine what in a few weeks. <laughs> Seriously. All right. So what was your, okay. So you're in the kitchen, you're working with, with t- how many other 20 other chefs? 19. There ended up being 18 of us after okay, they got so rid of the two, uh, Jack, that weren't real. the two fake people that they hired to come in yeah, and scare I got people, Which were okay. really nice, by the way. I wish sure they were. <laughs> <laughs> so, Seriously. so now you're in a kitchen and they say to you, you have to go. And have you seen the show? Had you seen the show prior to all of this being on? Yes, I did see um, probably like four or five seasons because I was doing my homework. Sure. I don't know what I was working with, especially like, I mean, I've seen the show, show in passing before that, but I was like, no, I want to know what like crazy thing he, he's going to do and kind of give myself a little bit of expectation. Okay. So they kind of let us like throw you in there and then you see like your station um, where your ingredients are. Because they, you were able to give them two different signature dishes ahead of time. You just didn't know which one you were going to be cooking. Like give okay. them an idea so they can have the product ready. And what were yours? Um, so I did braised pork belly with a seared scallop over a polenta cake with a uh, poached egg so I, and I only had, what was it, 40 minutes? Oh, shit. So what did you do? How did you do your belly? Did you did you pressure cook it? So I was trying to be ambitious. So I, I was the only one that used a pressure cooker. Um, I braised it in some red wine, uh, garlic, and thyme. And I wanted to use a bunch of cooking techniques and show them that if I could show my cooked scallops on the first day, because that's, you know, like what everyone oh, can show them. He loves a scallop. He loves a scallop. Right? I was like, it's not that hard to cook a scallop. So I can prove sure. on the first day that I did that and brace and pork. I feel like I'd be fine. Absolutely. So everyone's running around and looking crazy because you're like, you don't want to not get it done in time. And there's not a lot of room. You're all fighting for space. And I think most of us were in heels in the girl side because we were posted <laughs> as like we're our first day outfit, which is hilarious. So people are like sliding all over the place. Insane. But we get up there and, um, he starts going through and like, I think like the first two people on our team, I think they got like one. I was like, Ooh, like you're based on one out of five. And he brings you up with like a guy, a guy from the opposing team and you go up head to head with them. So 
there's a couple ones. And then I went up with Brendan and I got a four out of five. So I was very, very happy. Good. And he just stands there and you're standing there. You're in your street clothes. You're sweaty. You, uh, you know, you got a towel over. You're like ready to rock and roll. And then he has to critique your dish. Yes. So he critiques your dish. He rips you apart or he absolutely loves it. Um, The only thing he gave me like a, not like a critique, but he told me to uh, basically I should do a fried egg instead of a poached egg. Okay. Well, I can understand so, like, that. It holds together a little bit more. But, more uh, the, and the texture-wise, because it like, sure. rides the plenty gate. So I was like, right. sure. I, I love uh, constructive criticism. Absolutely. Uh, but he did, after he went through everybody, um, our team ended up losing because they did the total scores of all of us. Okay. We lost on our first day. We did do a punishment, and it was basically cleaning up the dining room. It was like, probably one of the most easiest punishments and like stuffing envelopes or something. Right. Looking back, that was like easiest thing ever. <laughs> the boys got to, I think, go meet um, William Shatner. Oh, so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, so that, that was first day. That's basically like our first initial like hour in there. Okay. So like sweat bullets. And then you get to go upstairs in your like living space and you see what you're working with and you realize like you're being bumped with like, I think I had five girls in my room and then we're all share bathrooms. Ugh. So it was like four stalls and this random bathroom with all the guys and all the girls. No. Awful. How weird is that though? I mean, like at first it's kind of like weird, but then you just get over it and you realize that there's cameras everywhere and like you're going to, the camera's in your face while you're getting ready in the bathroom. Like, they're going to catch you doing stupid stuff. Like it is what it is. Sure. And you finally, you just kind of just block it out after a while. Right. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know how like you did it. Like I, on other ones, like you guys had downtime when you weren't filming like on rescue, right? Like they were, yeah, but we weren't, we weren't in a competition style. So, True. you know I mean? For us, we had, it was, you know, I mean, look, first and second season were really um, very straightforward and real. I mean, once you hit third season moving forward, they were very produced. So gotcha. it was, you know, I mean, they, like everything was blocked out for us. Like for you guys, they're saying your block is, okay, go into the kitchen and cook. For us, they're saying, okay, what is your timeline for doing this? And I'm saying, okay, we're going to make a grilled cheese, whatever. We're going to make a grilled cheese. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to show him, you know, his shitty food. And then I'm going to show him how we're going to put this together. So for us, it was very blocked out. Like we knew exactly what we were going to be doing. And there would be times where I would actually kind of lean in. They'd have a shot going on the chef and I would lean over to the camera guy or to the to the producer at that point and say, hey, I need to make reference to this. And then they would kind of stop reblock and then I'd go back into it. You know, so they would know if I was going to start flipping out at somebody because they were, you know, cutting cooked chicken on a raw board. You know what I'm saying? So like, so we were blocked out with a lot of that stuff. So it was a lot different when, in that regards, but you guys were just moving around. So, so you're upstairs, you're living with these people that you've never met in your life. You're Mm -hmm. now having to shower. I mean, was it like five girls are trying to shower at the same time or two guys and a girl? Not in the same shower. It kind of never ended. Like once we got upstairs, like some people would eat, but some people, I mean, I know you, if you've seen the show, you know, we have to do confessionals. So there was multiple different rooms and we would be told, oh, you can, you have to stay in your clothes right now because you're confessional. You might have to sit there for two hours just sitting there. 
waiting. Um, so sometimes it really didn't like block up on the scheduling of like showers and stuff like that. It was just more or less annoying because if you were tired, you wanted to go to bed and you'd sit there and wait for other people to do their confessionals or just depending on when you were in the order and things like that. They just wanted you to look like you were still in the kitchen. Okay. So that was a little frustrating. And then I guess getting used to the confessionals was one of the hardest things for me at first. Cause it's like, I don't know, you're sitting in a room and you're staring at a wall and you have to talk right. and like the producers like asking you questions and you're just like, sometimes you're like, <laughs> you know, people try to start drama with other people. They'll try to get you to like say certain things. And at first I was like, no, yeah, no, I don't nothing. care. I'm not starting nothing. drama. And then after a while you just start getting pissed <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> because like, and the more drama started happening in the house, like you needed somewhere to vent. So then right. that's where the confessionals no. eventually became like, I don't sit there and like curse and like do stupid things. Like some people were always in there crying. I swear, always crying. <laughs> and like, you would hear them like um, from through the walls and stuff like that, or screaming and being ridiculous. And I'm like, all right, that's so not me. Like, Literally, right. if you want me to cry, you have to run over a puppy in front of me. Like, I'm just not a crier. <laughs> on purpose. On purpose. Like, right. seriously. And people always say that. And they're like, I swore before I went out there, I would never cry on national television. Like, it was never going to happen because it's just not me anyway. My sister says I don't have tear ducts. So right. I was like, it just never happened. You can scream in my face all day. My thing I do is I smirk. Okay. Because I get uncomfortable. I'm like, why are you yelling? So that I always, always get in trouble for laughing. Oh, my God. You're not taking me seriously? I can, I can totally see you standing in, like, one of my kitchens, and I'm, like, reprimanding people, <laughs> and you're smirking. And I'd be like, and what the fuck is your problem? What? You're not taking That's what would happen. If he was, oh. like, screaming at me, and he's like, Christine, why are you laughing? I'm like, stop laughing. Shut it's my face. <laughs> it's my face. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Right. Like he'd be like throwing salmon, and I'm like, uh, all right. But I mean, plus, I mean, you're from Philly, so there's a there's a difference in you compared to a lot of other people. I mean, Philly, look, we're tough in, in certain ways, you know. I, I, yeah, mean, I think we do have really thick skin. We do because I think that we're. We're not – and I say it all the time when it comes to national stuff. Like the whole country is so pissed off about everything. And Philly's like, so he called her Pocahontas. Well, you know, I, you know, like <laughs> I just don't think that, that we are as offended as other parts of the country. So I think we I handle agree. things a little bit different. First off, we're used to getting screwed over when you just look at our sporting teams. So, oh my God. you know, although huge, I'm not going there right now. I think we're, we're, well, we'll talk, we can talk about that, but I, I'm super stoked about this year. I know they lost. I know they lost this week, but look, Hey, you can't be on top every single week. They needed a humbling no. so that they can come back big and strong. And I hope to God that they come back next week just, and they're going to explode on people. So, sure okay. They will. Philly chick in a kitchen, Gramsci, who is one of the most intimidating reality TV chefs that's out there is now st is screaming at you because you're smirking at him and you're saying it's my face. Go ahead. Well, I feel like I've seen comedy in a little bit of it. Like for me, that's like, you can get frustrated and you can yell all you want. It's not going to make the situation that much better. Like at, at one point. So like either tell for me, I'm always like, all right, fine. How can we make it better? What can we do differently? Right. And I think that's uh that's just how my, my brain operates at least. Okay. I found the most difficult part of that kitchen, number one, is that most kitchens aren't a brigade system anymore. Like, And I think that going into that, most of us haven't worked in a traditional kitchen like that. Hold on, hold and on. And the timing. 
Back up for one more second. Back up for one more second and say that again. Okay. One of the hardest things that you found was? One of the hardest things that I found was working in that kitchen using the brigade system. And okay. it was only because all of the places I've worked at or any kind of kitchen experience I've had, basically you, when someone calls for a dish, you're making almost all the parts of the dish yourself. Right. Because that's it's how a, a lot of restaurants work. They don't have that full staff where they can have seven people Right. Working on one dish at one time, bringing the dish together, and and so so everybody understands. So yeah. so everybody understands a traditional brigade system works with the the executive chef, and then it trickles down from there. Escoffier was the guy who years ago set up the kitchen brigade to create a hierarchy, so that there was an anarchy in a kitchen. I knew that my job was poisson, so my job was to cook. And then from there, I had to then pass that dish down to the guy who was doing vegetables. And then that plate would meet in the middle and somebody would put that dish together. That's basically the way that it worked, which is not a traditional kitchen these days because of labor, because of the the, the hierarchy and all that stuff. You typically have a chef who's working the line or expediting. And so I understand. So all you're really doing is cooking a fish at that point or something to that effect, right? And you're passing it along. For the most part, so for me, like, okay. Picture this. All right, say I'm on hot apps, okay? Okay. So I'm in charge of hot appetizers, and there's Ramsey would come in the kitchen, and he would come in in his British voice, scream a bunch of stuff at you, like, and you had no idea what he's saying. He'd be like, four covers, table five, blah, 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 two risotto, two tagliatelle, two this, two that, two that. You'd be like, what? And think about it, you don't have a ticket in front of you ever. Yeah, it's all You got to remember what he's saying. So I think at first it was just even just be – Listening to him and getting that information to stick because he would do that like 10 tables in a row sure. and you would just get them started. And then at the same time, like you would be, say I was making a risotto and then the person that had to bring the scallops up with it at the same time, you had to rely on them. So say they would burn their scallops and you your already sent stuff again. to the past. Yep. Then you have to start all over every single time. And that's, I think, cooperating with people in that kitchen was probably the hardest part because we were all in competition with each other. There right. There's so many opportunities for people to throw you under the bus or do things to really sabotage you. Sure. And it's just easy. It's, it's missed you, opportunities, I guess. Have you, ever worked in, have you ever worked in a kitchen like that other than being on the show? Um, I would say... I mean, prior to being on no. the show. Okay. It, it's a, it now, is. I actually was a culinary student before I went on the show, so I was doing internships and things like that. It was like a culture shock at first. Right. And it was, I mean, look, I, I've been in those kitchens. I've been in those traditional French kitchens. And, and it's funny because you, that, that can happen there too. I used to work with a guy when I was at Stripe Bass in Philadelphia. And, uh, and he would, he literally would sabotage me on a daily basis. <laughs> hated me. I love it. Hated me. Because I was a chef. I was an exec prior to going. Were you rude to him? You know, I was really a humble guy at that point. And one of the reasons why I was humble is because I left, you know, I graduated culinary school and three days later I was the sous chef at a restaurant and I did my apprenticeship at the Four Seasons in Philly. So I learned the traditional French brigade of things with Jean-Marie Lacroix and Tony Clark and Marty Hammond and all those guys and David Gottlieb. So, so I learned that traditional French method of doing things, that that hierarchy in the kitchen. But when I left, I then went to Key Largo and lit and worked down there for a drunken chef. And you know, the brigade system wasn't there as as it was at the Four Seasons. But I was a chef. I was a full blown working chef and exec prior to going to Stripe Bass. So for me, 
I went in as a humble person because I wanted to get back on the line and cook, which is why I went to Stripe Bass. But getting in there, and I never talked about what I did or any of that. I was just a cook at that point. And this guy just hated me. He just did not like me. I don't know why. <laughs> I, 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 it happens I, sometimes. I never did anything to him, but he burnt the shit out of me one day, like added extra oil into my pan when I had turned around. And one of one of my other guys was like, he totally did that, dude. So that when I had put my I just kind of reached over and I had put a piece of uh, fish into the pan and there was so much oil in it. I was moving. It was the busiest Christmas day or uh, Friday before Christmas that they had ever had. And I had a huge splatter of oil in one of the top five kitchens in the country that ended up on my left forearm. And, and I just turned around. I was like, what the fuck? Like totally kept it under. Cause I was in an open kitchen, but anyway, it, it happens. That sabotage happens during that point. But I'm happy. I got this experience because once you get it, you get it and you love it. it. And it, once it starts working as a, like a well-oiled machine, you start yeah. cranking the food out and it became a job to me. Like after being out there for a couple of days, just like any other job, you kind of forget the cameras are there. And you just go about your business and it's yes, chef, yes, chef, yes, chef. And you're just doing what you're supposed to do because you have to survive. Sure. You start Absolutely. working better as a team. Wow. So, okay. So now you go through like, you know, this kind these kind of stages and stuff. And, and I mean, what's it like being in the kitchen? You've got cameras everywhere. It's a wide open kitchen. Ramsey is standing up front screaming at you. People are trying to sabotage you because in reality, it's not just a, a, a TV show. It's a challenge. You know I mean? It's a competition to get to that next level. What is that pressure like? <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a lot of pressure. And I think, um, I tried to kind of like block it out and just take it as a task at hand. So for me, it, it became difficult at first to deal with the people, but then like you start linking up with certain people you realize you can trust. Um, you right. start finding people's strengths and weaknesses. I was a little bit quieter in the kitchen in the first, and at first and I started gaining my voice because I was out there with a bunch of people that were executive chefs at a lot of right. different restaurants that had like 10 years plus experience. And you and just graduated. Like, oh, you would, I didn't even graduate yet. Like oh, I still had to come back and do one more semester. Which was oh weird my for me. God. It was like crazy coming back to school after that. Like I'm couldn't sure. say anything, but it was just strange. Sure. And it was, it started coming together, but then you would have like a, a person that would try to always start driving with me, with me or like always try to throw me under the bus. Usually it was someone that was weaker than you, but it will always like to point the finger at you. So you start like just dealing with this, Describe. I think one of the hardest parts was like if you made a really bad mistake or something, and he would make you go apologize out in the dining room. It was just oh, very uh, humiliating. On. And sure. I would say the first night when we were on meat station, I had to work with the lovely Monique, which we were definitely not friends. And um, somehow there got some kind of raw lamb got up, and it was because her oven wasn't on, and it was a problem. And our whole <laughs> team had to go out. And talk to Tori Spelling and Dean at the time. It was not very, um, I love it. Not very uh, nice. So I really like held a grudge. I was like, "What's wrong with Dean? Why is he trying to be rude?" <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. So other than that, like, I got to go for some really fun guests. Like Steve Urkel was there, and Tiffany Amber Thiessen one day. Like wow. fun people that I was like, "Oh my god, oh, that's cool." People watch you growing up. Now, what is what is uh, how big is the dining room? Pretty big. I'm trying to give like a comparison. It's like really high ceilings, open, and it has a bar in the back of it. 
Okay. I would say I'm trying to think it probably fits like a hundred people. And then okay. there's steps that go upstairs above the bar that go to Gordon's office. Okay. All right. So, so that all of like- that. Okay. So all that's there. So now first night and, and so first couple of weeks, you're, how many days are you doing this? Oh, every day. Every day. So, so did you guys seven days a week or were you guys five days and two off or any of that? We don't get days off. Of course not. So they load you up. So, and can I ask you, uh, can I ask you a I question? Mean, eventually after a two week period, I think they gave us a one, they called it a, a dark day kind of thing where, but it's, it's not like you're off and you're out doing something. It's just, that's, you, I think they had to for legal reasons or something. Sure, of course. Now, can I? And you don't have to tell me uh, how much. Are you being paid during this time? Um, it's not like a, a payment thing. I think it's just because you're on television, you have to do a. It's like a minimum thing for a legal thing. Sure. Nothing. It's like a. Think about Min- it like the minimum wage. Of like a, a you're getting scale. Like, you're getting scale. Yeah, it's just something that they have to do legal wise. It's not something that like replace any kind of like income that I normally would have. Right. So, but it, but it's. I mean, you have to. You're getting scale because at this point, you're you're basically talent on camera, and due to union laws and labor laws and all that stuff, they have to pay you something. Yeah, I think it's something along those lines. Okay. Contract so long, I can't really remember. <laughs> right, and you're being and you're and you're 1099 anyway, so you don't know what to do with it and all that stuff. But okay, and you're not spending anything at this point anyway because you're living in LA in a hotel. You're not allowed to go anywhere. You're not allowed to do any. We're what not happens? living in a hotel, actually. We live on set. Oh, you live on set. Okay, so, that's right. You have the. So you the live above the kitchen. Right above the kitchen. Now, what about let's say you're a smoker? Who gets you cigarettes? Does, do they have a runner that goes and gets stuff for you? Well, let's just say that I am not a smoker. Neither am I. But um, I believe you were able to bring a certain amount of stuff. And then, like, I think it's kind of like if you needed something, they would just bill, like, have, like, a thing for you, like, a bill at the end or something like that. Like, if you really did. But you're supposed to pack everything you need. But there's a large sheet, obviously. Okay. Things like that. But you can't go physically get anything. Um, Of course not. It'd be like, you know, like, the staff. You always have this upgrade. Nice. Okay. All right. So couple couple weeks are going by. You're banging it out. You're in the kitchen. People are starting to drop left and right. Uh, Angers are starting to grow. Relationships are building. Who was hooking up? No one. And really, that's no one. Like, and the thing is, on our season, I've seen other seasons that people like they insinuate that they do. But I'm pretty sure you're not allowed. Yeah. I I, I, there's like a thing saying like that you're not allowed, but like no one like for me. Fraternization. Number one, have you seen Hell's Kitchen? Yes. Have you seen? Sometimes it's not the most beautiful bunch of people. Yes, I'm not gonna lie. I got you. I got you. So I mean, for some people, yes, but sometimes. <laughs> right. Throw it out there. Sometimes it is, but like oh, you're so focused. Like I'm. Not even like I wasn't even thinking of that. Like, and I w- was in a relationship, but it's still it's like there would be like people that would flirt and be like that. But it's just funny. Like, I don't know. I couldn't even take it seriously. I'm like, there's two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the line. I couldn't even imagine sure. thinking about anything but that. Okay, but that's just me. 
All right. So you're going through these weeks and then you kind of get to, to, I mean, was there, was there anything that was so outstanding at that point that you just told memorable? Was there anything that was so memorable at that point that you're like, I can't believe this happened or, or something to that effect. I mean, just from being on the show at that point. I mean, there was a couple of things that I thought were really strange. Number one, like some of the activities I had to do, like one was they had two pool set up outside and then you had it looking like the Arctic. There's like snow everywhere and ice everywhere. And we're in our pajamas, get woken up out of bed by alarm clocks on remote control cars. They're oh, flying God. around upstairs. You can't catch them to turn them off. Which is <laughs> so is it like it's a like, drone? Like, where am I? Is it literally a they had their no, people would literally have remote control cars that were driving them around with the alarm clocks on them. Like oh. part of the staff, I guess. And driving us crazy. So you're already woken up on the wrong side of the bed. Like you're pissed off at the world. You know, I'm not a morning person. I come outside. I'm in shorts and a t-shirt, and I'm told I have to get into the frozen pool and find the match. So like they had fish, right? And they cut them in half. And like say I had to find the head, and my partner would have to find the tail and match them up to find what we're gonna cook. Fish, or is this like a cardboard cutout? No, oh, this is raw, very large. Love it. <laughs> Completely useless. It was hysterical. Task. Having nothing yeah. to do with the kitchen in general. Good. Okay, I'm catching what you're throwing. Stuff, Go like, ahead. stuff like that. Like things that you just normally wouldn't have to do. And like punishments, for instance. Okay. The one day we lost and Chef Andy made us milkshakes, right? For lunch. So you didn't get a real lunch. You had to go clean and scrub the t- kitchen. I think we had a massage really large octopuses that day with salt for about two hours. Okay. So, you know, you smell like fish, you're gross, you're massaging an octopus, and then you get to sit down and have a milkshake, but she tells you that they're not normal milkshakes. Right. And she's not telling you the ingredients. Mine ended up being the warm ostrich milkshake. Oh, Jesus. Chunky. So things like that, like that I never see myself doing, but, you know. Right. Who? Let me ask you a question. You said you had to go in and clean the kitchen. Yeah. Is that was that a part of the daily task for you guys that you have to clean up after yourselves? For punishments, yeah. So like every day in the morning, you usually have a like a, a challenge. So the boys yeah. team versus girls team, and then whoever would lose the challenge would be punished. And it would start with cleaning the kitchen, and then you would have whatever punishment on top of that, and usually then a food punishment as well for like whatever meal it was. So and while the other team would be out gallivanting and enjoying something awesome. Sure. So, so you guys bust your asses all night long through a service period. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there any, who's, who's, who's putting food away? Who's cleaning up at the end of the night after your shift? Um, usually us, unless you're kicked out of the kitchen. Get um, out of here. And then sometimes like depending on the situation and they do, they do have like a, like a staff that comes in. I don't really see them, but. Right. That would so, like do certain things to make sure that food was good and things like that. But I mean, you've got your, so you're doing a scallop dish and a part of your scallop dish is uh, whatever. Let's just do it this way. So you've got a, a reduction, you've got shallots and garlic, you've got all your mise en place on your station. You're mm-hmm. cooking in front of 400 plus people on TV, pressure around you all the time. Ramsey's yelling at you. People are trying to sabotage you while you do it. And then you're putting your mise en place away at the end of the night. As long as you're not kicked out of the kitchen, which we, we got kicked out of the kitchen a lot. So, but right. uh, yeah, so I like sometimes, for instance, like say the red team got kicked out of the kitchen, the blue team will come over and finish 
their tickets real quick most of the time. And then they would put away for the most part. You're happy at that point. You don't care if you're clean enough if you're sure. if you won. Right. <laughs> wow. That was like wow. the best feeling ever. That's just crazy though. I mean, look, I get it if I'm working in my kitchen and I'm being paid to do that. And I get that if I'm but I just for me, like there's just no way. I just I don't know. It's not for me. That well, I because think that's, it's that's part of the No, I think it's part of the environment. Uh, they want you to be tired. They want you to be stressed. They want yeah. you to have like no sleep, which most of the time I got like three or four hours of sleep. I was barely eating. I definitely dropped like ten pounds when I was out there. Because wow. you're running, 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 and you're stressed. You're not going to sit there and then, like, have, like, a – unless it was a, uh, a prize, like, a four-course meal. Sure. Like you're, you're nonstop running and stressed, and that's what wow. makes it great. Because people – I think the number one question people ask, is it scripted? No, I'm a bad actress. It's definitely yeah. not scripted. Sure. That's crazy. I never knew that. Honestly, I never knew that. I mean, you know, being in TV as long as I have, you know, there's always some, you know, and this is a horrible thing to say because this is, this is going to sound a little bit more prima donna than anything else, but there's somebody to clean up after, you know, when I was doing rescue, I would go into the kitchens and we would bang everything out and then we would leave it to the staff, you know, because that that was their job to clean up the kitchen. So, okay. All right. I, I, I get it. It's, Wow. So what you're saying is that you were a diva on set. No, no I wasn't kidding. a diva at all. I, because I, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But, but it, well, maybe a little, maybe a little. I'll never forget. I, I, I had done TV for a couple of years and I had done rescue for a while and I had shot a pilot with my brothers. And I, I tell this story all the time about being humbled. And because, you know, just like I do, you can be coddled. You know, especially now in the world mm-hmm. that we are where you're doing appearances and all that stuff. And, hey, do you need anything before you get here or can we get anything for you and all that stuff? So it is it does happen. You know, I mean, they talk exactly. about child actors becoming prima donnas and all the other stuff. Well, imagine being 11 years old or 12 years old and somebody saying, can I get you water or would you like a coffee? And you're like, I want fucking green M&Ms and a straw that goes whenever I put it up and down in the drink. I mean, <laughs> like you pretty much get whatever you want. So the prima donna world happens because of production. You know, they're there to I make agree. I think there's, there's so many. I think there's so many chefs out there that do have that that sure. cocky attitude is sometimes it's a little too much. And I find that when I speak to people and, and we have fans out there and we're, I think we're very personal and we like to talk to people and really get them involved in what we're doing. And I think people really appreciate that because sometimes when they approach other chefs, they give them the cold shoulder and they don't really sure. appreciate. I think that that's one of my things that I like to do If a fan reaches out to me, sends me a message, asks me a question about some kind of food advice or anything always get back to them and always make sure that they understand. Like I will definitely like, I appreciate the support. Yeah. I have, I actually have a message on my Twitter and Facebook that says, if you send me a message, it actually says, thank you so much for, for, for texting me or emailing me or reaching out to me, whatever. I typically check my messages once a week. So please don't, because I used to get shit from people. Like I sent you a message five weeks ago and you never replied back to me. And I'm like, I got a hundred thousand people that follow, you know, there's only so uh, much that you hard. can reply and it's really tough to do. So I agree, especially with how like Facebook Messenger I get a gazillion uh, a day. But they're not really food related. They're not something that I really <laughs> need to get yeah. back to. It's hard sometimes. Okay, but. so let's fast forward. You have now gone to your 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 full run and it's your last day. And what is that? I mean, what's that like? Did you know you were going through your shift? Was it something in your brain? I mean, was there something that said this is just not working out the way that it should? 
No, I was well, actually, I didn't go home like a normal service or anything like that. So okay. for me, um, I went home. We just got done uh, having one-on-one consultations with Chef Ramsey. I got to the point where he called each one of us up to his office, okay. sat down. Um, Is this taped? Is this on it? camera? Yeah. Can you tell so, that I'm not, that I don't watch TV? <laughs> and that I've seen Hell's I've seen Hell's Kitchen like twice. So, it, and I, I do that for a reason. Like I can sit here and do research and find all that stuff out, but I'd rather talk to you and ask you these questions. So, so go ahead. So you're going up and you're sitting in Ramsey's office and yeah, this is all he, taped. Yeah. So each person on your team had to fill out a packet and it was like okay. strengths and weaknesses, what they thought of each person, um, blah, blah, blah. He goes over with me, like what he thought. He said that he thought I was being progressing. You know, I was doing well, but I need to have more of a voice in the kitchen. Just like I said before, I need to be more of a leader in the world of all these other leaders that are there with me because we were getting down to the wire, blah, blah, blah. After we're done, we all go downstairs. He calls us into the kitchen. It's late night. And we're like, what's going on? And he said, whoever your team voted in as the weakest, when I was like the most inexperienced one, there was five of us. Right. And then on the other team, they voted in Randy, who's like my good friend. And he's like an army vet. And he's awesome. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And so we're like, great. So he goes, you're going head to head, three courses. You have to make the, I think it was the, hold on, the risotto, the halibut with um, the clams. And then I had to do the bread pudding all in under, I think, 30 minutes and have them popped up at the end. Bread pudding doesn't – bread. how are you cooking bread pudding? Well, whatever. Go ahead. Well, I'm this is what I'm, gonna, that, I'm actually glad you brought that up. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting because that is something that I'm going to bring up in a second. <laughs> so for me, you look around and you see the mise en place. They threw out extra mise en place, obviously, if they're your curveballs because they never really plated everything. Right. Uh, chef, Andy would plate it or Chef would plate it, and then like we would always bring it up. So – I make my risotto um, It's on point. I go to do my lobster. My Vermont is a little bit hot. So my lobster was a little bit overcooked. My risotto was perfect. So Randy's lobster was perfect, and his risotto wasn't as good as mine. So we were both like even dead to dead, head to head on that point. So then we bring up the halibut. I think I did everything right except for the tomato jam. I forgot that was up at the past, like that I forgot to put on top. Didn't have to make it. I just had to put it on there. My sure. dish was good. Okay. Then we get to the bread pudding. So for me, I didn't see, like, in the fridge on down below, I guess they had the creme anglaise already made. I so thought I would have them. to make it myself. So I made it myself and I had soaking. And my bread pudding, the only thing that was wrong was didn't have enough time to soak enough because we were there for 30 minutes. But right. he did commend me for making it myself and being ambitious because I thought that's what the challenge was. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. So we were neck and neck for but the hey, guess what? Look, thing, and then he beat me out. More power to you, though, because not a lot of people know how to make a creme anglaise. And now I, I – well, thank you. But now, like literally, I've made bread coating multiple times because I'm always like, I went home for this and I will show the world <laughs> that I am the bread pudding. Look, <laughs> <laughs> so that's thorn in my side. But literally, though, Randy, was he – had like 20 years experience and um, he's awesome and great person. So it was like, if I had to go home to someone that at least it was like a friend. Right. But then I had to stay out there for another like week and a half or a week and come back and do the finale anyway. Okay. And cook for the finale. So that's what happened. So in health kitchen, I know you don't know all that, but they bring you back the top. I think it was nine of us got up there and we had to, they had to pick us for teams 
and then we cook for the two, uh, the final two. Okay. On their final dinner in service. Nice. So. Nice. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So, were are you still friends with people that we were on the show with? Uh, some, yeah, some I talk to on a daily basis, um, and then some other seasons as well. I guess what because of the pop up dining thing that I do has become really, really popular, and I've done lots of health kitchen dinners with different that's people cool. that I've built relationships with lots of people from other seasons. Oh, that's cool. So it's kind of like a, a good network. Um, do you know some people from my season? I definitely talk to. Okay. Do you know Jason Santos? I know Brian Santos. Okay, Jason is the guy with blue hair who was on. Okay. He was on he was on, he was on pretty early on. Yeah, he's he's a good buddy of mine. That's why I was just asking. So okay, oh, so okay. now so so what are you doing? I mean, well here, let me ask you another question. How are you guys contracted in and, and I ask all the serious questions. Have are you guys contracted in any way to have to do those pop up dinners? Are you put into a group, into a pool, or are you kind of handling all that stuff on your own? Um, I have no contract with anyone to do anything. Um, I want to say I've done like, it's not even like, I don't call them health kitchen anything. The ones that were like called health kitchen takeovers were mostly at Caesars. Uh, I would say last year okay. in Atlantic city. So they right. did a bunch where Megan, the winner from our season was there. And then we had a couple of different people that would come, but it right. wasn't like a health kitchen affiliation. You know what I mean? Like Fox is not in charge of it. Um, okay. I've done many partnerships, so I would say like tea for my season. We've done a bunch in Virginia. I've done a bunch of myself. Just the whole idea of people ask me if I want my own restaurant, and right. they're so surprised when I say no. Yeah, and they don't get it. I'm like, well, for me, I get to cook in a different part of the country all right. the time to a new audience who's never sure. experienced my food. Right. And I think that's a great opportunity. I look, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I look to be tied down to a brick and mortar when you're just coming out or when you're doing this stuff is a really hard thing to do. I mean, it's proof is proof is in my place. You know, I mean, I, I mean, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. a tough thing to do. And one of my biggest reasons for selling was very, very simple, very, very simple. And anybody can say whatever they want. I was not there to oversee the day-to-day -day operations for a property that had my name attached to it. So for me to talk about the Duffified world, which is about experiences, it's about uh, uh, exceeding the expectations, it's about going above and beyond. And when you have a staff that doesn't believe in that, and that is that's something that you can only push so far, I had to take off. You know, I mean, it just wasn't, I had to, I had to disassociate myself from that group. Disassociate. It's such a smart move because like it makes you vulnerable and yeah. open for people to critique you on things. And like, yeah. you have to be there 80 hours plus a week. You have to yep. put your whole heart into it. If not, it's not going to succeed. So many chefs get burnt out. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted to take a different path. And I think by going on Health Kitchen initially, that already showed that I was going to be taking a different path. Right. Some people... After the show, they kind of disappear. Some people lose it. <laughs> yeah. Or Jeez. they're embarrassed by how they did. I they don't show up. No. <laughs> Hilarious. Sorry. Shit you happens. Know, and I think that all comes down to a work ethic and what you put into it and what you want. And right. I feel like people ask me if the show made my career. No. Uh, I could have just went and did any other job in Philly that I, I got offered when I got back. And I was like, no. I worked hard. Right out when I got back, I finished school. I became a sous chef with Jose Garces. I worked down at the Kimmel Center for a while, just kept my head down. No one knew that I did anything with the show. Worked right. as a farm and fisherman. 
just put in work. And I, I wanted to make myself even like way better than I was on the show just to show people how much sure. progression I made in that time period. Cause we had to wait about, was it almost two years, a year and a half before our show aired. Are you kidding me? It's that far in advance? Talk about it. Yeah. Get out of here. We did. And you didn't even know if it was going to get picked up or not. Oh my for God. The next that's season. horrible. So was like, did I, did I do all this for nothing? <laughs> that's horrible. Wow. Cause I mean, for us, we had our turnaround was typically two to two and a half months for episodes. So, I mean, when I first started, oh God, that's nothing. Yeah. I mean, we were chefs though. I mean, we were all working, you know, I mean, I was yeah. working in restaurants. I was working in a, in a corporate environment on a, on another project, but, but I had enough episodes. I mean, I, I, I did two and a half or three seasons, three and a half seasons. So, you know, I mean, I had enough shows to air and my shows, like we were talking about the other day, my shows still air out of the top 10 episodes, the worst episodes that were out there, the worst kitchens, eight of them were mine. So uh, my shows still air pretty much weekly, at least one, yeah. if not five. You're still yep. in front of them. That's good. We're on, I think it's a Did you know that like, so uh, different parts of the world or um, different time, yeah. you know, different things like that. But they'll air our show like a couple years later and they've never yeah. seen it. Yeah. One day I've seen all these fans from Scotland and I didn't know what was going on. And I was like, yeah. why am I getting all these fans? It's and so because cool. Because the show just aired there. It's just awesome. And it's, it's kind of cool because then your demographic changes as well of the followers that you have, you know, you've already got a support system and a group of people from Philly that like you, and then you're now launched into a national setting. So now you have fans that are coming from all over the country. And then the next thing you know, it starts going into South, into, into, into Brazil. And the next thing you know, it goes from there. So there's kind of some cool, uh, there's some cool things about that. I think it's great. Yeah. I love my followers. I love the people that, that I follow and that I connect with because I have friends all over the, all over the country. Absolutely. You know, it's not like I'm heading into Brazil in the next couple of weeks and I'm going to go hang out with, you know, Fabiana, who is a woman who, who is (laughs) friends of mine on Facebook. She's like a nice person. She reached out to me after the show. She loved what I did. We communicated back and forth, you know, and, and I did it oddly enough through Google translate where I would actually type. Yeah, because I was able to then talk and she would do the same. And she was just, you know, she would ask me for like cooking advice. Hey, I want to do something with this. What is your suggestion? And that's how the friendship. Now she's like a friend of mine on Facebook. But and it's not like we talk to each other, but it's just kind of funny that that progression of how that happened. So that's cool. So what are you doing? So what are you doing now? What's your what's your world now? What's My world like? is different every day. So like, okay. for instance, lots of traveling. You can relate to that. But like last, I think like a week ago, I was in Georgia Tech. I was doing what we call a meet and meet where they were featuring me in their new building. And I got to be a feature for the students and go down there and cook them like some fun food. I just did Taste of the Runway Philadelphia on Saturday down in Center City. So had to feed some models and you'd be surprised at how much they eat. (laughs) (laughs) And then they throw it up before they get on stage. Oh my God. I don't know. I'm saying that, but they can eat. I'm always like fascinated. I've done a few (laughs) fashions in DC in here and I'm like, wow, you guys are great. Um, Right now I have uh, some fun projects coming up. I have some recipes that'll be posted up for the holidays. um, And I'm also working on some new products and a lot of charity events coming up in the next, like month or so that we're working with 
um, we have some announcements about some pop-up dinners, which I'm really excited about. Cool. So, so that's what it is. Every day a little bit different. Me um, doing a lot of trader. Like I'll be going to the Boys and Girls Club and doing cooking classes in Chester. And then okay. I'll do some private events, and then I'll do the recipe writing and, you know, just. Yeah. Okay, so I kind of finish everything. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions first. One, can you do me a favor? Tell everybody how they can get in contact with you, how they can hire you, how they can follow your world. Okay, the best way to get in contact with me would be through social media, and that would be at Chef Christine Hazel on Facebook, Chef Christine Hazel on Twitter, Chef Christine Hazel on Instagram, and Christine Hazel one on Snapchat. Um, any kind of, you can send me a message or you can send me an email at christinehazel at comcast.net. Okay, perfect. Next, um, where, I have a couple quick questions for you. Best, well, let's do it this way. Worst mm-hmm. kitchen experience you've ever had. When you say, what do you mean? Like, like, like cooking or just like kitchen or how bad the kitchen Just was? at the end of the day, you're like, what the fuck? Like, holy shit. Like for me, I'll tell you, for me, I opened a restaurant. I did it in a, in a, with, uh, in, in Newark, Delaware, I opened the restaurant and we were on limited budgets across the board. We didn't have enough money to have full training. I remember the owner of the restaurant or the owner of the restaurant group telling me that I wasn't a good employee unless I paid for the plates. Okay. Unless I personally paid for the plates to open the restaurant because I was on the corporate team. So And then after that, we opened up. We have no training. We have an enormous restaurant, one of the biggest ones that we had opened. Uh, I had a limited staff of jackasses who were really only trained for about a day on how to execute. My chef of the restaurant grabbed a kid in the kitchen by the throat, threw him up against a wall, punched him in the face, turned around, said, fuck all of you, and walked out the back door. The guy who got punched in the face went out back and sat down and smoked cigarettes for about an hour, ultimately came back in. My mother was in the dining room wondering if she was ever going to get fed. The director of marketing was screaming at the kitchen because she had been waiting for three hours. She ultimately ended up getting fired. Like that was quite possibly the worst day I've ever had in a kitchen. I think you should write that down and make that a script for a movie because that sounds so insane. I have no (laughs) idea what that day was right. like. I've got, I've got two. Okay. Um, one was on the show, but it was kind of funny and weird at the same time. Cause it was just like the oddest thing. Okay. Um, I was working at service and we were just like prepping, getting ready. But it was like the call for the storm. We're sitting around and I hear like someone cursing and screaming out in the hallway. And like how it was, was we had our few kitchens and there was a little entrance. And then there was like a restroom back there. So I go out the, like out the door to see what was going on. And I see someone from my season one of the guys banging his head against the wall and like yelling, what is wrong? And he said that he pulled his back out in the bathroom. And I was like, what? Like literally he pulled his back around and in his words, he said, taking a shit. And I was like, God, this can't be real life. Like, I don't know what's going on. So I was like, I come in and I see chef Andy and I tell her, and she looks at me like I'm crazy. And I was like, uh, and that's probably the one time I cursed in the show. And I was like, what the hell? Like, literally, they bleep it out and I got on the soup because of it. On me, and I was dying laughing. Nice. Because, like, they had an and he had to go home. Like, literally, wow. because of a wow. bathroom accident. Probably the oddest thing I've ever seen in my life. That's impressive. I would say one of my bad experiences in a pop-up was, I'm not going to name the restaurant, but I did um, one last year where we went up there and, like, 
the rest of the kitchen was so tiny and they kind of put us on like a little folding table on the side because I was partnering up with another chef, the chef in the restaurant and they were doing construction and literally it was like standing on uneven plywood with a little tiny folding table while they were like using the rest of the kitchen and I had like all these like ridiculous dishes and I made fresh nudie and I had them in the fridge. Well, their kitchen guy, their prep guy decided it was his time in the middle of service to clean out the fridge. And I said, no matter what you do, don't touch any of that stuff that's labeled right there. He put them out, left them out. They basically popped up, got warm, and because they were sitting on top of like an oven. And I had to make sure. them from scratch five minutes before the dish was supposed to be played. Like literally so irritated. Like I wanted that guy fired. And I was like, because it wasn't his chef's dish, he didn't care. Sure. It doesn't matter. I really agree. Lovely. Yeah, it's just a respect issue, but yeah. other than that, like nothing too crazy. All Not right. like yours. That was insanity. Oh, and that was that was even that was a portion of it. I mean, like people were late that morning. Uh, the corporate team hadn't made it down yet. Like it was just so bad. It was bad. Well, I think I've definitely done pop ups where the other chefs, like working with other chefs, is difficult. Still, um, sure. where different ones, like we just talked about that, with different people that don't show up or unreliable or show up like a half hour before service when it's like. All of our names are on this. Let's let's make it the best we can. And I think the work ethic is hard to find. It's hard to find people that really have that drive and really want it. And there's certain yeah. people out there that have expectations. They want things just handed to them. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful world that we live in of being in kitchens at times and sharing the personalities with all these different people. So um, I actually had a guy in Guam once who uh, he was a chef and he said – and his kitchen was filthy. It was disgusting. Ooh. And I was in Guam. I mean, I was on a military base and I looked over and like they slacked out my beefs the night before I was making meatloaf and I was only in Guam for 36 hours. So I had flown all day and all night the night before to get down there. I get in and I'm tired anyway. Um, I go into the kitchen and he's got and he just slacked out the beef like in on the bottom of these walk in on the bottom of the roof, the uh, the reefers. And it was just blood everywhere. So I'd like go through all that. I go in, I clean it all out. I'm doing everything I have to do before I can even start cooking. And I look over and I was like, chef, is there any, you know, uh, chef, do you have knives here? And he looks over at me and the two other guys that were in the kitchen with me. And he's like, what celebrity chefs don't carry knives with them anymore. And I looked over and I said, have you ever paid attention to the fact that it smells like somebody took a shit in your drain? I was like, this is your kitchen. He was so (laughs) focused on his awards and his accolades. And he looked like a uh, like a four star general standing in a kitchen with a toque. And it was so funny because I I don't know. It was just we've seen it all. We've seen it all. So, Christine, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day and hopping on. And and I love that you're from Philly and I I love your drive and, and the passion for what you have. So thank you so much for hopping in with me. Well, thanks for having me. It was always a pleasure. See, that's why I love my Philly people. Uh, Christine Hazel, everybody go out there, check her out, follow her, uh, listen to all the cool stuff that she gets to do. And, and, and she is, uh, she's, a, she's a pretty awesome girl. So I appreciate your time and hopping on with me. Thank you, Christine. So definitely go follow her, guys. That's all I'm going to ask. Uh, I'm going to wrap it up. That was a great show. I really enjoyed talking. Um, let's, uh, let's do the stuff that I have to do. If you're on Twitter and Instagram, please follow me. I'm very simple. It's chef Bryduff, C-H-E-F-B-R-I-D-U-F-F. Anybody get out there, please talk to your friends about the show. Tell them how much fun we get to have and all the cool info that we get to do. Um, have some great guests coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, feel free. Chef Brian Duffy at gmail.com. 
Um, you want to do some bookings, you can do the same thing. I have a couple fun things coming up over the next couple of weeks. I'm shooting a, uh, a new show up in Pawkatuck, Rhode Island uh, with my good buddy, Michael Tips. So we're going to be doing some fun up there. Uh, if you're on Facebook, check me out at Chef Brian Duffy. I do a lot of my live videos up there as well. Um, you can pretty much, you know, just find me there. Uh, I hope everybody has an awesome week. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the support. Our numbers are coming in and they're really big. The, the, the follow that I'm getting with you guys is just beautiful and I appreciate it. Tell all your friends, go to Duffified Live. Have some fun. Everybody have an awesome week. Thank you very much. Didn't get Duffified enough? Follow Chef Brian Duffy on Facebook and on Twitter at Chef B-R-I-D-U-F-F. Look for the blue verified checkmark to get exclusive content and to see what's coming up on next week's show. This has been Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy on Radio Influence. This is Vincent Hill. You've seen me on CNN, HLN with Nancy Grace, Al Jazeera, and True Crime with Aphrodite Jones, just to name a few. Now I've got my own show on Radio Influence, and I'll be taking you beyond the badge. I'll take you behind the scenes and into the minds of those following and investigating America's top news stories. Beyond the Badge with me, Vincent Hill, can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and the Radio Influence family. Let's enjoy this ride as I take you beyond the badge.